I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Despite what the lights on your street might be saying, it's still Christmas. The, you might see trees out on the curb ready to get picked up. You might see all the lights taken down. But listen, we are just beginning this Christmas season. We get to celebrate for a while. Um, the Epiphany is transferred to the first Sunday after January 1st. Uh, generally, typically, traditionally, it's been on its Epiphany is January 6th. Uh, that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas from. And yet, uh, there have been some changes as uh, as time has gone on. So the first change is that we celebrate, the, the, in the United States at least, we move that celebration to the first Sunday after January 1st, wherever that happens to fall. Uh, and then the uh, the Sunday after the, um, after the 6th, whichever that is, is when we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. So if, uh, if of course, if the Sunday after the first is the sixth, then the baptism of the Lord gets transmitted to the Monday right after it. But in, the, in this case, this time around, um, baptism of the Lord gets pushed all the way to the 13th of January. So we get to keep our Christmas trees up and have uh, have all kinds of fun there. Some people, if you, if you just really don't want to take the tree down, whether it's because you are really in the season or you just really don't want to deal with the hassle of taking all your lights down, you could theoretically leave them up all the way through February 2nd through the presentation of the Lord. Uh, and and you could just say that you're being festive. Uh, your neighbors might um, might gather and call an emergency meeting of the <laughs> of of the uh, the neighborhood association. But you would be well within your rights to say, "Hey, no, this is uh, this is religious freedom here. I am practicing my faith." So we still have the Christmas lights up. We um, and we do what we can to extend the celebration of Christmas. Last year we had a third day of Christmas carol sing where we invited people over and we had a a true christmas party because most of the christmas parties you went to in december all the christmas parties you went to in december unless it was after the 25th uh they were really advent parties and you were jumping the gun so we we have a an honest to goodness christmas party on the third day of christmas did it last year we expected to do it this year had it all planned out had uh, the invitations sent out and then on christmas day the house was afflicted with fevers and uh, and chills and coughing, and it passed from one child to another, and we thought it best not to inf- infect others. Uh, so we've postponed that party, but we're still going to try to get it in before the 13th to have some celebration of Christmas that extends beyond the unwrapping of the presents. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you have uh, some young children around who very much enjoy the stories around Christmas that we tell culturally, and you want to continue that, then I invite you to uh, occupy them in some other way or subscribe to the podcast archive here over at OutsideTheWalls.com and listen at some other time because we're going to be talking uh, about the, the jolly old elf and his eight tiny reindeer. And we're going to ask the controversial question about whether or not uh, his story helps us tell the greatest story or whether it may even 
detract from that greatest story. So uh, we're talking today with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of the University of Notre Dame. He's part of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. And he wrote a very interesting piece, uh, I think last year, uh, but it recently recirculated on our Sunday visitor, Newsweekly, asking this question about jolly old St. Nick and whether or not uh, this is a story that is benefiting us as Catholics, that's helping us raise our children with a, a strong Catholic imagination, or whether this story may actually, in some ways, be working against us. Uh, now, before we dive deeply into this topic, it is I do have a disclaimer. This is a very charged topic because we want to give our children, more than anything at Christmas, we want to give them the magic that we experienced as children at Christmas. And so what often ends up happening is that we not only replicate or try to replicate our own experience as children, but we end up multiplying it and growing it uh, beyond what it ever was when we were kids, because as children, it looked huge. And as we've grown... Uh, we realize, oh, well, I need, I need to make it huge. But our idea of what huge is, is very different as a grown-up than it ever was as a child. So we've created these new traditions and, me- and narratives that, that we never experienced as a child. But the goal of them is to create in our children the same sense of wonder and joy that we had as children. And anytime that these narratives or new traditions are challenged, uh, we... we immediately internalize the the result of them being challenged. We think that what's being challenged is our children's view of, uh, of the season. We see that somehow we're trying to uh, dismantle the magic of Christmas and the, the wonder that we want to give to our children. And so I want to give the disclaimer very early on that this is certainly not the case here on the show today. Uh, if anything, we want to increase the sense of wonder that we give to our children around this amazingly beautiful holy season. We want to expand it and and grow it uh, in such a way that it never gets lost. That uh, it, one of the things I experienced as a child, as the narratives of Christmas kind of collapsed around me, is that all of the wonder that I had for that. Uh, seemed to get sucked out of the room, and Christmas was never the same. And so what we want to talk about, what I'm looking forward to talking with uh, Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo about, is how do we form our children's imagination around this season in a way that that wonder never gets lost? Uh, And so I encourage you, uh, as you listen to this conversation that's coming up, that you listen with an open mind and listen with the understanding that the ultimate goal is simply to find the narrative that will most instill a sense of joy and wonder in our children this Christmas season. Don't go anywhere. There is much more to this show right after the break, but... While we have this opportunity for the break, go ahead and shuffle your kids out of the room as we look forward to a very engaging discussion right after this with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of the University of Notre Dame McGrath Institute for Church Life. Join me over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Why don't you tell me one of your most meaningful Christmas memories? We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo today. Uh, we're talking, so if you have young children who still absolutely love all of the Christmas movies uh, about a jolly old elf, uh, this would be the time to usher them from the room as we are going to have a very insightful conversation about the big man himself. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes there. Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo is the Director of Undergraduate Studies for the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, uh, one of my favorite institutes. They've got this wonderful journal that I just I, I get so much out of. Church Life Journal, you can get to by going to churchlife.nd.edu. Additionally, uh, there's a podcast, which uh, you host, yes? Mm-hmm. That's so, true, Church Life Today. Which is, it's fantastic. It's kind of like if you were to take NPR and thoroughly saturate it in the church, you get these long-form stories and really deep dives into topics. It's a lot of fun. Go check it out wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, That's you should the perfect NPR line right there. I love it. Subscribe to it. <laughs> subscribe to it, and it should show up right in your aggregator, right next to this one, outside <laughs> right. the walls. That's right. So you wrote this piece uh, a couple of years ago, actually, and re- I found it through your Twitter uh-huh. Three reasons why it's time for Christians to bag Santa. That's right. And I, I love all of the the extra, you know, the bag Santa and because and, Santa carries a bag and uh-huh. yeah, nicely played. Well, played. I don't think I can take credit for the title, but I'll just I'll just absorb the praise. That's right. fine. <laughs> I think somebody else gave it the title. So uh, this is something that I've, I've wrestled back and forth with. We don't do Santa in our house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, because I had a traumatic revelation of Santa personally. You did. Uh, I did. I was, uh, I was a true believer, man. I w- was okay. walking into church, right? We're walking into church and I'm like six and my, um, my brothers let slip what eventually always gets slipped. Right. And, and I look at my mom pleading as if, tell, tell them to stop this. It's not true. And she says, I think you're old enough. As we're walking into church in the parking lot, I burst into tears all the <laughs> way in. It's so embarrassing. It's, it's forever emblazoned in my mind. And so for yeah. me, uh, that was what I took away from the mythos more than any of the joy I had as a child was the crushing revelation uh, mm. and so I didn't want to put my children through that. Um, and so we just did, uh, uh, something different. And as we became Catholic, we began to reincorporate, uh, the, the legends and the, the stories, the hagiography of St. Nicholas, but we right. celebrate that on, on his feast day on the sixth. Right. And we right. kind of separate that mythos entirely from Christmas because I want Christmas to be about Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so you have different reasons for this, which I think are much more informed than simply my own uh, trying to avoid the trauma of my childhood. <laughs> you bring well, up. We're some, all here for you. Thank you. Yeah, you yeah. bring up some theological reasons. So let's talk about uh, some of these reasons that you think it's time for us to take this mythology of Santa Claus, as mm-hmm. has been created for us by Coca Cola and other consumer agencies, mm-hmm. uh, and to to get rid of it, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, happy to talk about it. So, I mean, I think my main my main approach has to do with something that I'm just deeply interested in all the time, which is how to form the Christian imagination. Um, so much of the life of faith has to do with the imagination, not about fantasy, but about what we set ourselves on in terms of the images that form us, what we think about and the ways in which we think uh, have long-lasting effects in terms of the capacities for belief, in terms of what, how we see the world and how we engage. And I'm very interested in that for children, uh, for young adults, because this is where um, adult faith actually is grown. So that's kind of the setting for the whole thing, I suppose. But, you know, as you mentioned, uh, right in the title of this particular article, which is a short one, and it was, you know, in our Sunday Visitor News Weekly, so it's for a more, you know, sort of a broader audience. It's not an academic journal. The three reasons I wanted to point out had to do with the image of God that's sort of uh, suggested in Santa Claus, the image of St. Nicholas, and the image of the Magi. So I want to take those three images and think about how they do form our Christian imagination, or in this case, how the image of Santa Claus subtly kind of inverts those images. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the subtlety of the inversion that's actually the real danger. Because if, you know, we're always attentive to the things that outright reject or oppose uh, aspects of the faith. They're easy to see, and it's easy to reject those it's the subtlety that makes them more influential. So we could talk about those three, if you like, um, maybe one at a time. Let's How do. Okay. So um, w- let's start with the image of God, because I think that this one is is most central to us. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to start off by saying this. This is, as you well know from the comment section, a very charged topic, because right. people are caught up in the emotion of their own childhood, like like I was in reverse. Right. They have joyous memories of of Santa Claus, and they want to pass those on. and And they somehow feel that they're being a bad parent if they don't give their child that that experience. And yet, we have yeah. to remember that that experience of of Santa Claus is a very new experience. Um, it, it's one that was created out of a Christian mythos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was commercialized. The picture that we have of Santa came from Coca-Cola, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the major idea of uh, the ethos and the mythology around Santa Claus came from uh, Frank L. Baum, who wrote uh, right. the, the, the Wizard, Wizard of Oz. Of Oz. Yeah. And, and so what we need to do is say, take a look at our priorities. What are we trying to get our children to be? And, mm-hmm. and is this the best tool to help us do that? Or should we go back and, and grab these uh, well-founded, proven ancient tools that are proven to give us uh, a good sacred imagination. Right. And, and that's what you're you're suggesting we do. So I want to, to all the parents who are already up in arms right now. <laughs> we send, send your comments to TL, not to right. me. <laughs> we, we, want, we want you to see uh, and open to the possibility that there is a greater imagination and a greater sense of joy to be given to your children by actually getting rid of this. It's not that it's bad. It's that it's not good enough. So that's a great way of putting it. Let's start with the image of God and how Santa doesn't quite measure up and can distort the picture that we have of God, the father. Will do. So yeah. So with the image of God, I think, 
you know, we can focus in on something which is maybe one of these little jingles about Santa, like Santa Claus is coming to town. This is what I, I put forward in this article. If we think about the lyrics to that song, which really do kind of capture a general image of Santa, right? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice, etc., etc. So be good for goodness sake. Here's what I say. The idea that someone anyone is watching you all the time, right, is in alternating moments both creepy and unsettling. But the real question there is, who is this that's watching you? And it actually maps on quite closely to what the psalmist proclaims, say in Psalm 139, that no matter where the psalmist goes, to the highest heights, to the lowest depths, God is always watching, is always there, is always present, knows the psalmist in his deepest parts. Mm -hmm. So the question in either case is, who is this that's watching you and why are they watching you? And what I'd like to suggest is that this image of Santa who is checking your behavior against some really vague uh, set of measurements, by the way, that we call, you know, being good, this Santa who's watching you and will reward this good behavior and presumably punish bad behavior actually doesn't map on to the Christian image of God, as we would find proclaimed in the Psalms, but more maps on to what the sociologist Christian Smith has dubbed the moralistic therapeutic deist. Mm -hmm. In other words, this image of God who is remote but watching, who's involved in checking behavior, but not intimately involved in one's life, who has these sort of like vague set of rewards that will be given, but doesn't actually transform the person to the fullness of beatific joy. Okay, so that's a lot to say about Santa. It's like, aren't we just talking about a kind of innocent tale here? Well, let's think about how much authority that image has in children's lives, how much excitement and enthusiasm goes towards it. And that's the kind of stuff that really forms imagination, where there's energy behind it. It's not that their energy's bad. It's that they're, I think, getting invited into taking on an image of God that is already the dangerous default image of this moralistic, therapeutic deist. Well, and let's take a, a step back there, because uh, we, we're forming religiously, even if we don't know we are. And so yes. these, these children who who are threatened, oh, you have to behave or else Santa is going to give you coal. How many kids have actually ever really gotten coal when they misbehaved? And so there's <laughs> this idea that everything I do is really okay. It's all going to work out mm. in the end. And so, yes, we want to we want to be careful that we don't end up in a, a Jansenist rigorism, but we also don't want to yeah. end up in this laxity that says, I can do whatever I want and it's fine because Santa's still coming and he's still going to give me uh, all that I all that I need and all that I want, and uh, oh, and by the way, now I'm going to transpose those ideas without even perceiving it onto my idea of God. Yeah, I mean, not also not to mention that you know Santa or God in this case seems to love the affluent kids a little bit more than the <laughs> impoverished kids, or quite a lot more. But that let's put that to the side and think about you know what you're saying there that. Um, that all the behavior gets rewarded in the end anyway. How often do we hear when a young adult or even an adult is responding to the question, 
however it's posed. Like, do you believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there's like this being out there that's watching me all the time and like keeping a list of what I do right and what I do wrong. Like that seems so childish. Mm -hmm. Well, what they're really explaining in a sense is the image of Santa Claus now transposed onto God. I'm not saying there's a causal relation that the belief in Santa Claus causes this kind of belief in God. But I am saying we should pay attention to the correlation, like image, imaginations are formed somewhere. And what I'm saying is this reinforces and strengthens what is already the dangerous and slowly toxic image of God that disassociates people from real belief. So you're talking about the things that we need to, uh, to avoid in shaping the imagination. What are some things that we can do to help foster a good imagination of God in this regard around Christmas? Yeah, I think in, in some ways that's going to have to do with this, those next two points about St. Nicholas and the Magi. But maybe the first big point here is an issue of, well, let's just call it purgation, like what to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And I could think of it maybe in comparable terms, like if somebody or a group of people have kind of a habitual issue with, I don't know, I don't mean to dramatize this too much, but with drinking, the first step is stop going into the place where the alcohol is provided. If you have an issue of certain kind of behavior or default beliefs relative to a certain group of friends, the first step before we can think about what replaces it is stop hanging out with those friends, right? So maybe we'll just make that the first point, an issue of purgation. We're talking today with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of the University of Notre Dame, the McGrath Institute for Church Life there, talking about the stories that we tell around Christmas and whether or not they convey the true meaning that we hope to give to our children. Why don't you come sound off over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls and don't go anywhere. There's more to the show right after this. You're listening to outside the walls with TL Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today uh, with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and we're talking about a sensitive topic. So if you have young children in the room that you are not yet ready to make your decision about how to handle the mythos around Christmas, now is the time to shuffle them out of the room. Uh, while, while you do that, there, there's this comic that I came across recently that I think sums up a little bit of what we're talking about. Uh, it's from the, the web comic XKCD and it's, it's this little graph of the 20 most played Christmas songs from 2000 to 2009 on radio airplay by decade of popular release. And you'll recognize some of the titles here. Santa Claus is coming to town. White Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. Let it snow. Uh, Winter Wonderland. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Blue Christmas. Little Drummer Boy. All the way up to Feliz Navidad. And it shows that those were released between 1930 and 1970. And the title of this comic is Every Year American Culture Embarks on a Massive Project to carefully recreate the Christmases of baby boomers' childhoods. It's a little scathing thing here, but it's true as we look at uh, what, what is the mythology and the, the, the culture that we're trying to pass on to our children, and we're trying to hang on to this with all of our might and 
then you go and you look at it and you're like, oh, this is really a very recent trend here. And what we're giving them is something that is lacking in the fullness of the Christian imagination. Instead of singing to them these these carols, these rich carols uh, that Im- really transmit theology, mm-hmm. uh, we're giving them Frosty the Snowman. And we're transmitting theology nonetheless. It's just not very rich theology. And to help us discuss that is Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo, Director of Undergraduate Studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, who wrote a piece recently uh, which um, which has garnered a little bit of, of backlash in the comment section. Uh, it, <laughs> they've, they've emblazoned it. Uh, this is OSV News Weekly. They've emblazoned in the title, right before anything else, opinion, <laughs> colon, three reasons it's time to bag Santa. Theologian asserts children should be taught the true version of God rather than a made-up story that distorts faith. Man, does that read like a headline or what? And I didn't write the headline. And you know that when it says op- opinion colon, it means complain to that guy, not to us. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so let's talk about this. We talked about how okay. uh, Santa creates, I think, uh, this idea that God is is one, always watching, but that mm-hmm. he doesn't really care. And that he's removed. You mentioned this. He's removed. He only comes once a year. He doesn't really intervene in our lives. He just showers us with affection. So you you said that there are some other images in addition to the image of God that Santa Claus specifically usurps. Let's get into those. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about the image of St. Nicholas. And I'm really indebted here to one of my colleagues at Notre Dame, Gabriel Radel, for doing some research and presentation in a a really popular presentation on St. Nicholas for our Institute Saturdays with the Saints series last year. So if you wanted to watch him give this lecture, you can actually find that on YouTube, Gabriel Radel, R-A-D-L-E, Saturdays with the Saints. And the, the lecture is just fantastic. It's really excellent. But he pointed out something that really instructed me and illuminated this for me, the distinctions, the subtle but really decisive distinctions between St. Nicholas and Santa Claus on really fundamental things. And it has to do, I think, with the reshaping of an image that forms the imagination. So if you were to say to somebody, you know, who does Santa Claus really represent? The most likely candidate would be St. Nicholas. But here, I'll read from what uh, Gabriel said in his lecture that I think really puts uh, a really fine point on this. And he did this in good humor. This was a really funny moment in the lecture. He says, what we have here in the United States, which for better or worse is spreading throughout the world and wiping out centuries old St. Nicholas traditions is really a watered down St. Nicholas who no longer comes on his feast day, but instead lives with magical reindeer on the North Pole and seems to have thrown off his life of abstinence and gotten himself a wife. He also seems to suffer from gluttony and the lack of self-control in front of chocolate chip cookies. Okay, so Gabriel's pointing out like some really small things that are, you know, it was for for humor. I mean, it was funny, but there is a point here, which is that St. Nicholas, the saint, his life was formatted by the evangelical councils, by poverty, chastity, and obedience. And what Gabriel did very skillfully, but also in a very appealing way, was show how the image of Santa Claus actually shows the reverse of each one of those things. The reverse of poverty, which has to do with excessive consumption. The reverse of chastity, which has to do with a kind of prodigality. I mean, he's pinning it here to having a wife. But 
this was part of St. Nicholas, a life of uh, chastity and celibacy in this case. Um, so poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, and what Gabriel makes the point about is that, as you mentioned earlier, the figure of, Saint, of Santa Claus that we have inherited and we think of as St. Nicholas was actually more closely created by uh, Frank Baum, who, who wrote The Wizard of Oz from his life and adventures of Santa Claus. That had a lot to do with it, along with Coca-Cola that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So the point here is that the figure of St. Nicholas, a saint who could form the Christian imagination and show what the life of holiness begins to look like, has actually become an inverted image. And we're actually very subtly given the opposite. Mm -hmm. And we sort of see this as, if not an ideal, at least someone to cherish and to revere, Santa Claus. Of course, there's a lot to like there, the generosity. Right. But you lose St. Nicholas in the process. Well, and with St. Nicholas' generosity, we see it uh, as as life-giving, right? We have the the boys who were- It was were, ransom. Who were yeah, brought back ransom. to- Right. You've got yeah. the, the, the stockings come from the ransom. You've got the boys mm -hmm. that were brought back to life. You've got uh, all of this that really was uh, giving a person what they absolutely needed- uh, for their life, whereas with Santa Claus, we have uh, frivolity being given for the sake of our entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's our desires mm -hmm. versus our, our very felt immediate needs. That's right. Now, uh, we're going to do one more here. You said that mm -hmm. Santa distorts the image of God the Father, which we talked about in the first segment, distorts the image of St. Nicholas himself, uh, the Bishop of Mira in the in the fourth century. And then lastly, you say it defaces and deforms our idea and uh, our Christian imagination around the three magi. So yes. tell us, tell us, Dr. <laughs> oh, please. Please. Yeah, how this might how be, does this happen? This might be an even subtler sort of argument, but stay with me. It has more to do with uh, the trajectory of the journey and where, what the goal of the journey is. So think about it with the magi. These three... Uh, monarch, you know, monarchs who are traveling a long distance to find the one that they will acclaim as the true and universal king. And they bring to that king, the one who they're recognizing above their own kingship, their own wisdom, they're giving to that king gifts of royalty. Right. Um, so the journey goes in that direction. Think about the direction of the journey that we associate with Santa Claus. Who's the end of the journey? I am. We're the end of the journey. Our children are the end of the journey. And that sounds lovely that we would make our children into the end of this journey of gift giving. And in some ways, like each of our children is that. We give the gift of ourselves to our children. But doesn't that sever something from the potentially instructive and even transformative uh, mission of the Magi? to point our direction, our gaze away from ourselves, to call us into this pilgrimage towards the Christ child. If you're the end of the journey, you don't have to go anywhere. Right. But the Magi say, we all have to go somewhere. We go here to this one where we really find ourselves in full. So that's, that's kind of the, the business about the Magi there. It has more to do with the direction of the journey, who the end of the, the journey is, and I do think over the long run, this subtly forms our imaginations. Um, it's a kind of stasis 
relative to Santa Claus coming to us. If I'm just good and I stay here, I'll get what I need towards this sort of dynamic longing for the one who runs ahead of us, the Christ, who calls us to himself, who comes to us, certainly, but not so we stay where we are, so we move into him and towards him. So that's the point about the Magi. So here, let's let's think about how we could turn our attentions and and to better form our children's imaginations. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there are, there are cultures that have the three Magi coming on Epiphany. There's still this idea of mm-hmm. gift-giving and... and it, takes on this consumerist ideal of giving our kids all that they could ever desire or want. Um, and so I, I question whether or not the the gift giving needs to be as central at Christmas. We, mm. we personally do three presents per child. We do a gold, a frankincense, and a myrrh. So they get a present, oh, nice. a present to play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, a present for their body, right? The myrrh mm-hmm. uh, that um, PJs or, or some such, right? And then they get a present for their spiritual development. So uh, wow. uh, hagiography, Francis Alice Forbes has some fantastic short hagiographies mm-hmm. that are available on tan books. Uh, there are all kinds of saint hagiographies or uh, a Bible or just something that will help them develop in their spiritual life that, maybe points them to the fact that there's more to the journey, that these, these are presents yeah. for your development, not just, Oh, Hey, I get 50 toys that I get to play with for a month until I'm tired of them. And then they'll live in the closet forever and they'll never come <laughs> out and we'll never be able to find them again. Uh, because that's the way that we roll. Yeah. Until toy story five. And then we, we recover them and we'll see what happens. But Yeah. Because there, but would we even have a Toy Story if we didn't have so many toys that they had That's to right. had to have their own life? That's right. In order to in order to feel important, so you know, I, I look at this idea of uh, reformulating Christmas as as something that ultimately is essential. Uh, yes, I grew up with Santa. Yes, I think I turned out okay, but th- that could be an in spite of and not a because of. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it has to do also with a kind of cultural shaping. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could take this on case-by-case basis. And of course, there's always going to be um, examples of everything. You can find the examples of the children who were raised, you know, full stock on the Santa myth. It was part of the childhood. At some point, there was the transition and, you know, knowing that the story is kind of symbolic and then adapting it. And it works. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, we, I think we also have to think about this culturally in terms of, you know, fostering little uh, smaller Christian cultures. I don't mean over and against what we would see as a secular culture. Let's not just like, you know, fall back on our own into our own ghetto. But right. um, it does have to do with what is the default? What are the basic routines and rhythms? Because I think really in the end of the day, we can talk about, you know, things like forming intentional disciples and and strengthening the will. But I think what really forms people are intentional cultures. When the cultures, the small cultures, the parish cultures, the family cultures, the school cultures uh, are just driven by these intentions of what show that, that nourish and show the imagination. And I love your example of what you do with your family. There's intention behind it and that's formative. We've been talking today with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of the McGrath Institute for Church Life over at the University of Notre Dame about the stories that we tell around Christmas and 
being intentional about what messages we convey to our children, helping them form their Christian imagination. Check out his other work over at the Church Life Journal, churchlife.nd.edu. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Again, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas as we are still in the middle of the Christmas season. Today, we talked about the stories that we tell uh, during the Christmas season. We talked with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of the University of Notre Dame. He's at the McGrath Institute for Church Life there. And his his thought and his assertion is that we should make sure that the stories we tell around Christmas accurately reflect the, the Catholic imagination, that there's nothing wrong with a story that isn't explicitly Christian, but that that the stories that we tell ought to, in some way, help strengthen the the faith that we have and strengthen our Catholic imagination, and at least not detract from the story, the, the, the most amazing, the most wondrous story that there is to tell. <clears throat> that any story we tell ought to be at least um, not detracting from it. It doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly in service to it, but it shouldn't pull us away from that central story, the story that is the center of our faith, the story of the incarnation of God becoming man in Jesus Christ uh, at Christmas, and then his life, his death, his resurrection, the Paschal mystery that we'll celebrate as we approach Easter. We're not there yet. We'll get there. If you missed any part of the show or or you want to make someone mad and share it on social media, by all means, you can find all the archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, there's an extra segment with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon supporters keep us on the air by their gift week in and week out. Small gifts as little as $5 a month get you access to our weekly extra segments. Uh, So go take a look. Join their numbers over at Outside the Walls. All you have to do is click that Patreon link, the Support the Show link, and follow the directions that you find there. Well, let's go ahead now and turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from church history. And these readings tell the story of Christmas, the deepest story of Christmas, the one that provides our children with unlimited wonder as they come and grapple with it the one that they can't outgrow and can never fully grasp, the one that you and I still work to appropriate, that story of the Incarnation. And our reading from Scripture comes from Christmas Mass. We're going to go back to that because this is our first time together, you and I, to celebrate Christmas this year on air. And so I wanted to take a look at our Gospel from the the Christmas evening and the Christmas night Mass because there's four different Masses Uh, to be celebrated on Christmas. There's the evening, there's the at night, there is the at dawn, and then on Christmas Day. So this this is the gospel from the Midnight Mass. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing came to be. What came to be through Him was life. And this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness 
has not overcome it. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came to be through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave the power to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not by natural generation, nor by human choice, nor by a man's decision, but of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the Father's only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, The one who is coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. From his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. Because while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, God, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. That reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And how important it is for us to, to wrestle with this story, that God, who was inscrutable and unsearchable and unknowable, has revealed himself fully to us through his Son, through the Incarnation, because of that babe in the manger, because of, of the flight to Egypt, because of his, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, because of all that is encompassed in, uh, in the Incarnation, you and I have the ability to know God. The, the world that couldn't see God, that couldn't know God, that couldn't conceive of God, has been introduced to God by himself. He came for our sake. He came to reconcile us to the Father and to reveal the Father to us. This is the story, the matchless story of Christmas, that God, from whom we were estranged by the sin of Adam and Eve and by our own sin, took on human nature, clothed himself in flesh that he received from Mary, and brought reconciliation to all humanity, reconciled us back to God the Father. This is the story that we can never outgrow. Our reading from church history today comes from a sermon by St. Augustine and continues in this theme. Awake, mankind. For your sake, God has become man. Awake, you who sleep, rise up from the dead, and Christ will enlighten you. I tell you again, for your sake, God became man. You would have suffered eternal death had he not been born in time. Never would you have been freed from sinful flesh had he not taken on himself the likeness of sinful flesh. You would have suffered everlasting unhappiness had it not been for this mercy. You would never have returned to life had he not shared your death. You would have been lost if he had not hastened to your aid. You would have perished had he not come. 
Let us then joyfully celebrate the coming of our salvation and redemption. Let us celebrate the festive day on which he who is the great and eternal day came from the great and endless day of eternity into our own short day of time. He has become our justice, our sanctification, our redemption, so that as it is written, let him who glories glory in the Lord. Truth, then, has arisen from the earth. Christ, who said, I am the truth, was born of a virgin. And justice looked down from heaven, because believing in this newborn child, man is justified not by himself, but by God." Truth has arisen from the earth because the Word was made flesh. And justice looked down from heaven because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Truth has arisen from the earth, flesh from Mary. And justice looked down from heaven, for man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Justified by faith, let us be at peace with God, for justice and peace have embraced one another. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, for truth has arisen from the earth, through whom we have access to that grace in which we stand, and our boast is in our hope of God's glory. He does not say of our glory, but of God's glory, for justice has not proceeded from us, but has looked down from heaven. Therefore he who glories, let him glory not in himself, but in the Lord. For this reason, when our Lord was born of the Virgin, the message of the angelic voices was glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. For how could there be peace on earth unless truth has arisen from the earth, that is, unless Christ were born of our flesh? And he is our peace, who made the two into one, that we might be men of good will, sweetly linked by the bond of unity. Let us then rejoice in this grace, so that our glorying may bear witness to our good conscience, by which we glory not in ourselves, but in the Lord. That is why the Scripture says, He is my glory, the one who lifts up my head. For what greater grace could God have made to dawn on us than to make His only Son become the Son of Man, so that the Son of Man might in his turn, become the Son of God. Ask if this were merited. Ask for its reason, for its justification, and see whether you will find any other answer but sheer grace. That reading comes from a homily by St. Augustine. And this, this is the, the unfathomable, amazing, wondrous story that nothing can rival. And if we hear that story and somehow are not overcome by wonder, then we're missing something. Then Perhaps we've heard it too often and it's become too familiar and we can't quite look at it with fresh eyes. I encourage you, go spend some time in the chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament and listen in silence for the voice of the Christ child, for the voice of the God of the universe coming and meeting you and helping revive that sense of wonder in this true, amazing Christmas story. May you have a joyful and blessed Christmas season. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Christopher Robin Webster and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Support the Show link, and see all the extra content that's available to you if you join their numbers. 
Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Come and let's have a conversation. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 